time at Lambs. Where did this six months go? Oh my goodness. Just a quick announcement. Next week will be our praise and sharing. The children, your beautiful children, will sing for us. I think they have some things planned. So um, I know that your leaders have sent out the schedule for you. So if you haven't received it, I'm sure you'll get it this week. So next week will be special. And really, I ask you to pray about what to share. What has the Lord spoken or taught you this year? Because I know that he's taught me a lot. And I I mean, we want to hear. I think we learn a lot from each other, don't we? And when we hear how the Lord has moved in your spirit and in your life. So... With all that being said, let's pray and let's dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for Acts 10. Lord, thank you that it is more evident than ever that your word came for all people. For God so loved the world, Lord. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this word. I pray that you go before us now and teach us in truth. In Christ's name, amen. So when we finished up 2 Peter, it only seemed fitting to dive in and learn a little bit more about Peter. Oftentimes when I lecture, I always like to give you context and background. And to be sure, we'll do that again today. But to hear more about the man of who Peter was, I think it gives us even more perspective and maybe even a deeper, deeper love of Second Peter and last year, First Peter, because now we see Peter as he began to become the leader of the church. See, Second Peter was written before he died, right before he died. And we go back to Acts 10, Acts 2 from last week, and we see the beginning of the man God was making Peter to become. He could have never written 2 Peter had we not had Acts. So we get to see the wisdom and we get to see how he went from being this man of saying, no, Lord, I'll never eat that, to whatever the will of the Father is, if I must die, let me write to the people and encourage them. So we're going to connect all that. But I believe that Acts 10 is a gift to us. And it's one I know now in my own life I'm going to come back to often when I am trying to understand this, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But before we do that, I like to start with Galatians 3, 23 through 29. It's on your outline. And I know I gave you a long outline. I typically do that. I'm very wordy. But (laughs) um, even my son said to me the other day, isn't it funny? My daughters will talk my ears off. And then I was bringing my son home from baseball practice. And it's about a 30-minute drive. I didn't sign him up for this. My husband did. And I'm having to drive him because it's always at like 4 o'clock. And he goes, it's okay, Mom. We've talked enough. And I'm like, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm like, you're only 8. You're already shutting me down. <laughs> so anyway, on your outline is this verse. And I wanted to start with it because I think it is an all-encompassing verse that we could probably start and start start and stop with. Galatians 23, and this is in the NLT version. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept, I love this, in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. This is Paul speaking. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united in Christ in baptism have put on Christ like 
putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And wouldn't it be important for us to recognize that I could probably bet we're all from Gentile blood. So this message was for us. Aren't you grateful this happened to us? I know that I am. And now we get into the background, my favorite part. Peter was in Joppa. We know Joppa is a story out of Jonah. It's where Jonah fled to get on the boat in disobedience. About 30 miles north of Joppa was Caesarea. Under his authority, where the governor lived, there were 3,000 troops in this area, including this Italian cohort that Cornelius was a part of. Cornelius was an officer. Most importantly, he was a Gentile who feared God. So for a centurion, that was his title. He commanded 100 soldiers. This was a very important title. See, for him to get this title or this position, it took about 15 years. So just imagine like our military times. It took a long time. The people who carried this role were of the highest moral character. So he was well-respected. He got double the pay. So he probably was well-off. He obviously was considered to be important. We even see throughout the text where it said that his family and friends were gathered when Peter came. He had influence. So you have a Gentile Roman soldier representing a despised occupation of Israel. And 30 miles to the south, you have a Jewish apostle living with a tanner right now. And behind the scenes, God is orchestrating an event to bring two men together in the most shocking of ways. A shocking way to break down the wall of prejudice between the two of them. Ideologies that have been in existence for over 1,500 years. And the result of this story is that Gentiles and Jews are heirs to the promise of the gospel. It's important for us to remember that in Acts 10 is the fulfillment of what was said in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses not only in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The door of the gospel is being flung open in this story, and we get to see the very first Gentile convert. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came down, that was on the first Jewish Christians. And now we get to see the first Jewish, I mean, excuse me, the first Gentile convert. But let's dive into the story. Acts 1, I mean, excuse me, Acts 10, verses 1 through 8 is setting the tone for what's happening. In Caesarea, Cornelius, a man, he prayed, he gave gifts. His offerings and his prayers were received by God. God heard his prayers, and I believe he was seeking hard after God. And then the angel came. You can read it. We've read it. Men, send men to Joppa, summon a man named Peter. Bring him here. And then you notice in verse 7, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius gathered servants and another devout soldier, and he sent them on his way. Immediately he obeyed, didn't he? He didn't hesitate. He sent them. He wanted answers. And he obeyed. And you know, his response was interesting, wasn't it? When the angel came, what is it? He didn't hesitate to ask. It's important because despite all of his wonderful qualities and all of his wonderful deeds, giving to the poor, praying, 
doing all the things that he should do. He did not have Jesus Christ. And that was the thing that was lacking. So you could say with all of his good works, it didn't matter because he needed to understand the salvation of Christ. This is the mistake that so many people in this world make, isn't it? I have so many friends in my own life, family members in my own life who say I'm good enough. Even my own husband would tell you before he became a believer in his mid-20s that his threshold for him going to heaven was he had never murdered anybody. But he had never been told anything else his whole life except just be good, just be good. But who gets to decide who's good or what's good enough? Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And then we look at verse 7. The angel came, and without delay, he goes after Peter. So my first point on your sheet is, if you seek Jesus, you will find him. Can we believe this today, that through hundreds of thousands of details, I've often heard it said, if you could unzip and peer into the spiritual world, we would see hundreds of thousands of things being orchestrated for the good of man. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I think this ties back into Ecclesiastes 3, 11, where it says God has set eternity in the human heart. Every single person at one point or another, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, will say, why am I here? There's got to be a reason bigger than just what I'm doing. And then that links to Romans 121, where it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world, and that all things have been made. So every man is without excuse. So you see all of these things in Cornelius' heart happening. He's seeking after God. He knows there's a purpose, and he has to find the person who can tell him. And then we get into what I call the meat of the text, 9 through 33. It's a lengthy passage, isn't it? And so much happens. But this really, this part focuses on Peter, doesn't it? We shift in the story. The first eight verses was God preparing Cornelius. But now Cornelius, he had no knowledge that Peter also was being visited by God in a dream or a vision or a trance, whatever your translation is. And Cornelius didn't know that Peter would have a vision or a dream three times. And neither did Peter know Cornelius was having one. But it was all being worked together. See, Cornelius needed to be obedient to God and what God had told him to do. And now we see it's Peter's turn to be obedient to God. It was Peter's turn to follow the instructions that God had laid out. And probably this part is a little bit harder. Peter falls into a trance, and the dream, dream, as we studied, reveals that animals and birds and reptiles are falling down from heaven, and he says, now eat, they're all clean. And Peter was so disturbed in his spirit, he said three times he refused. Irony, three times, right? Everything with Peter, three times. And he says, oh no, Lord, not so, I'm not doing that. He said no to the Lord, and yet how many times do I say no to the Lord? See, I can relate to Peter so easily, You could argue his lack of obedience, but I think most of us may have responded this way. A whole system of your life that has been built upon, and then God comes and says, you don't have to live under that old covenant anymore. That would be a hard thing to get rid of if you think about it. See, we see this in Acts 10 happening with food, but we're going to talk about in Acts 16, 
11 years later, they're still fighting over this with the circumcision. So this was a slow turning of the Titanic to get them to see old covenant versus new covenant. But my second point, and I think my favorite point, is the Lord is so very patient with our refinement. Three times he told Peter this. I copied Leviticus 11 for you. Now, I don't know if you'll read it. That's okay. It's a little hard to read. But I think I wanted to copy it to show you. Look, okay, we've got four pages of God's word telling the people of Israel what they can and cannot eat. This is just food. This doesn't talk about how they relate to people, who they can marry, what they can touch, how they sacrifice food. It goes on and on and on. And this is just four pages. And over and over it says it's detestable, it's defiled, it's unclean. You can't touch it. If you touch it, you have to purify yourself. God in the Old Testament was making a point. He was setting a standard they could not live up to because it was so very difficult. It was a yoke. But yet it was put in place to set the way for the Messiah to come. And so his whole life, I mean, imagine if you have children or grandchildren or you babysit or you have nieces and nephews in your life, you tell them over and over certain things. Look both ways when you cross the street. I think I've said that a thousand times. Look both ways. Look both ways. Nobody ever looks. I'm like, what's it going to take? Like, really? Um, But the point being, we say these things. You ingrain these things in your nature, and then all of a sudden you're told you don't have to do any of that anymore. Okay, so in true fashion for myself, I have a video clip I want you to watch, and it's from Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. No, it's Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Now, let me just set the stage for why I want you to see this. I was watching this movie with my kids last week, and it gets to this scene. Okay, you know, this movie is they're trying to find the cup that Jesus drank out of for eternal life. We know that's not true. That's not the point. But the point is there comes a point in the movie where... There has to be a trust factor. Either you are going to trust that the Lord has set up a new covenant or you are not. And when I saw this scene, I thought that must have been how the first Jews felt. So let's just watch this. It's only one minute long.
him? I shouldn't have sat down. I'm sorry. It's okay. You got it. You just need me to stick this right here. Just put that right there in my pocket. Okay, so when I... Did everybody just go back to their childhood just a little bit? Yes. Okay, so when I saw that, I thought, imagine just taking that first leap. Imagine taking that first bite of food. Imagine being a Jew and not getting circumcised. It was just that first step of faith that they had to take. And that's why I believe that the Lord used Peter because we knew Peter was going to be the church, build the church. We knew that he was going to be a leader. And the Lord had to work in his heart on this. So back to the text, 19 and 21. It said, meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over this vision, the Holy Spirit, so here we see the Spirit already working in his life, moving and telling him, three men are coming for you. Go with them without hesitation. And the Holy Spirit spoke, and he obeyed. Peter went out. He went to Cornelius' house. And see what the text says here. Cornelius was eagerly anticipating Peter's arrival. He had gathered his friends and his family, and they were waiting on him. See, Cornelius knew if God had sent that dream, something was getting ready to happen. And there he was, and he was ready. And then the shift begins to happen. Peter says, he walks in. You know it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me I should not call, listen to this, any person common or unclean. So it went from food to person. And isn't that like the Lord to always bring it back to the person? And verse 29, so when I was sent for, I came without it objection. Now why am I here? Is what he said. And Peter went right to the point. God has shown me differently. We see in these visions that God is shattering the old way. The new way is coming. The promised Messiah fulfilled the law. So don't miss that. That Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but fulfill. Everything about the law and the prophets was to point to Christ. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, the stroke of a pen, or anything will disappear from the law until it's been accomplished. This important statement of our Lord gives us insight into the mission and the character of God's word. In the expository commentary, it says it like this. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish it. In other words... He did not come to dissolve it or render it invalid. The prophets will be fulfilled. The law will continue to accomplish its purpose. But consider what Jesus did do. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus' purpose was to establish the word, embody it, fully accomplish it. Christ is the culmination of the law, Romans 10, 4. And Jesus fulfilled What the prophet said about him, his first coming, he fulfilled hundreds of prophecies about himself that came out of the law. He obeyed the law. He pointed people to the law. He fulfilled its moral laws. And even unto his sacrificial death, he fulfilled the ceremonial laws. Jesus came not to destroy an old religious system, but to build upon it. He came to finish the old covenant and turn it into the new covenant. See, they didn't have to be at tension with each other. They came to support each other. 
His fulfillment of the law and the prophets was that we can obtain eternal life. We all have prejudices, don't we? That's my next point. We see it all throughout 9 through 33. I remember, like, I remember reading this story one time when I was reading a lot about um, missionaries in India. I was, I was really on that kick a couple years ago. And it was just a story of this missionary who had gone to visit the lowest caste in India. It was in the 1900s. And when they came to visit and, and the missionary went to sit, they're like, you can't sit with us. We're unclean. We're the lowest caste. We're outsiders. You can't come in here until we move up. And what they were saying, can you imagine being considered the one that was unclean? I mean, to the Gentiles, they had been told their whole life they were not worthy of God's promises and covenants. And here, on their side, now they're being said, told we're equal. I love Chuck Swindoll, and he said this about our prejudices. For all of our many differences, such as race and creed and culture and gender and nationality and people from all over the world, we have one thing in common, and that's prejudice. Its stubborn, thorny weed grows in every heart, and it draws nourishment from our sin. Cut it to the ground, poison it with le- poison its leaves, pull it up by the roots, and it will be back before we know it. And other times it takes hold in unexpected ways. Color of skin, nationalities, cultures, accents, yes. But how about political affiliations, economic status, marital status, religious background, Do you have a tattoo? What do you wear? Do you drink? How do you do your hair? Do you wear cosmetics? I could probably list 20 or 30 more. But don't we all have a prejudice or a bent towards something that we deem unclean or unholy? It's a universal problem. Peter, the hero of the Jewish congregation and arguably the most courageous Christian the first two decades of the church, struggled the most with it. Fortunately for Peter and our beloved church, The Lord would not leave him alone in it. I love that. See, a couple more things about how Jews felt about Gentiles. If they were having to go into a Gentile country, when they got back, before they stepped foot in Israel, they would wash their shoes. They would not even allow Gentile dust on the bottom of their feet. They didn't go in people's homes. They didn't talk to each other. They hated each other. And that is not what God intended, but that's how it got turned into this hate bread. Background a little bit more on that. As he grew up in Jewish law, Peter's growth of racism in his heart transcended too. But in typical human fashion, what was meant to be good was turned into something that was bad. See, God set the Jews apart, yes, but he didn't set them apart necessarily for this to happen. But you introduce sin and you introduce prejudices and you introduce racism. And then you have a whole system that was never meant to be. And if I'm honest, I've had this happen to me too. I've had this happen in so many ways. And then Peter speaks in verse 34. He didn't hesitate and he immediately launched into the gospel of Jesus Christ. He starts by saying, truly I understand God shows no partiality. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The Holy Spirit fell. And it even said that the Jewish believers who were there were amazed 
My version says astonished that it fell upon the Gentiles. They could not believe this was happening. And then verse 46, and they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, praising God. Sounds very familiar to Pentecost that happened back in Acts 2, doesn't it? It wasn't any different. Now it was coming down to the Gentiles. And at this moment, the entire Jewish belief system was turned upside down. So anytime you question the Lord's movement in your life and those around you, come back to Acts 10. The Holy Spirit was moving amongst the people and orchestrating the will of our holy God. And mighty things were happening. Verse 46, they heard them speak in tongues and magnify God. And then Peter says, they should be baptized. Now, Peter and Paul very rarely baptized. Um, That was on purpose. But he said, go and be baptized. And listen, the next point, the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people and will go out to all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people and will go out to all people. This past Sunday, our pastor said 4.5 billion people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about that? 4.5 people. So then the next point, what is God, how is the Lord going to use you to spread the gospel? I know we talk about this, but let's really get honest with ourselves. To what lengths are you going to share the gospel? What are you going to do? What will you give up? And I say this to myself. What are you going to sacrifice? What child will you give your blessing to to go into dangerous parts of the world to preach the gospel? What grandchild will you pour into because they need a shepherding, wise believer in their life? What line are you going to draw in the sand for Jesus? What person do you need to forgive for the sake of the gospel? What person do you need to ask to forgive you? For the sake of the gospel. How long will you hold your tongue for the sake of your witness? How long will you wait to speak for the fame of Christ to be vindicated? All for the sake of the gospel. What are we willing to do? And then the next point. Having zeal and doing the work of the Father. See, when Jesus entered the temple and he saw them using it to make money, the first thing he said, zeal for my father's house will consume me. So what zeal for your father's house is consuming you? I love this story in Acts 15 and 16. We see Peter 11 years later. See, on on here, you'll see on this outline, it starts in Acts 10, right, around 37 AD. And then we get to about Acts 15, 16. We're at 48, 49 AD. We're talking 11 years later. There was a notable, notable event going on in this time in Acts 16, just 11 short years later. And it was a serious point of contention, and it was circumcision. Holding fast to some traditions, some converted Jews really felt that it was a necessary ritual to continue to perform circumcision. You can find that in Acts 15. These individuals were insisting that the ritual had to be done and salvation had to be made known to those who were circumcised. You had to be circumcised. But we know good and well that that was abolished with the law, right? And so this is really interesting. If you go and you read in Acts 21, you will see that Paul was almost killed 
for this because he brought a Greek person into the temple who was not circumcised. This was a big deal. If Paul was getting ready to lose his life over an issue, it was a big deal. It was so divisive that the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter at the Jerusalem council. Now, the Jerusalem council was like a governing body um, over the church at the time. That was in Acts 15, 6. But listen to this. In attendance was Peter who helped clarify the truth of the matter. And listen, he stood up and he said with all authority, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about Acts 10. So God who knows the heart acknowledges them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and makes no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor us were ever able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And here's our Peter. 11 years later, it started with food. He did not three. He did not, three times. He said, "No, Lord, I'm not eating that." And eleven years later, later, he is standing up as the lead guy, saying, "Wait a minute! Eleven years ago, I said that we were all equal at the foot of the cross, Gentiles and Jews, and here we are talking about circumcision." We could not carry that yoke, and they shouldn't either. It is by grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved in the same way. Peter, he got it, 37 A.D. to 48 A.D., and he's leading the church in biblical truth. Salvation was not the issue here. Um, I'm sorry, one second. Timothy, later on you'll see, he was circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Now, he didn't have to be. But he had such a, Paul had such a conviction that he would go and he would witness to the Jews because he was part Jew, that he had him circumcised. But listen, this is different. He didn't have to be circumcised. He got circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Timothy went out and said, I want to reach more people, so I'm going to be circumcised. Salvation was not the issue with Timothy. Instead, Timothy became circumcised so that God could use him to reach all people, even the Jews, with the gospel message. So do you see the difference? He chose to have that done because he wanted to be more effective for the gospel. But what needed to happen was Peter standing up with all authority and all boldness and saying, it is not needed. And that could have never happened had we not had Acts 10. And then this is my last point. Only the name of Jesus Christ saves. Zeal for Jesus Christ will cause us to surrender not just our rights, our treasures, our comfort, our own personal ideologies. It will cause us to do it for the favor of Christ. John 1, 1.46 says, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. And then we get to Acts 4, 10 through 12. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And this man stands before you healed. 
Salvation is found in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven and earth by which one must be saved. And I love Philippians 2.10, don't you? One day the name of Jesus, every knee will bow under heaven and on earth and under the earth. I've told this story here before a couple years ago, but I think it's a fitting way to end. And I think it's a fitting way to end with our teaching time at Lamb's. No other name under heaven and earth which one must be saved. That's what they were fighting for in Acts 10 and Acts 16 and in Corinthians and then in 2 Peter when the false teachers came in that we talked about. My spiritual hero is Amy Carmichael. If you don't know her, go find her, go read her. She was a missionary in India. She never married. She lived her whole life there. She rescued girls from Hindu temple worship. Back then, there was an old tradition that said any girls that were brought to the temple as sacrifices, as prostitutes, they would move up in a caste system. It was a horrible, horrible folklore, but it was happening all the time. So these Hindus who were in the lowest caste would bring their daughters and sacrifice them to the temple gods because they were so desperate to move up in their next life. And Amy came from England And she opened up these homes and she rescued as many girls as she could possibly rescue. Amy would, she fought for years to change the way of thinking in India. And it took years to get this folklore to end. But in one of her books, it talks about how she was holding just a prayer meeting in this village. I mean, keep in mind, everyone around her was Hindu. But she was making headways with the gospel. And she was holding this prayer meeting and this teenage girl came down from the village and she sat and she heard Amy speak and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the girl came up to Amy Carmichael afterwards and said, that's the name I've been waiting to hear my whole life. And she went on to tell Amy that every time she would go into the temple each day, she would see all the altars made to all the gods. And she would always think, now this was a young girl, probably around age 15, And she would always think to herself, there's got to be one God above all these. There's got to be one God bigger than every other God. There just has to be. And she said when she heard Amy say the name of Jesus, it was like fire went out from her. And she said, I knew then that that was the name that I'd been searching for. She believed in Jesus, Amy said in her book, but then she had to go back to the village, which was some ways away. She ended up marrying a Hindu man. And she lost contact with Amy for 24 years. Well, back then, a lot of these young girls married older men. And so she had married an older man, and he had died because he was much, much older. When he died, she fled, and she came and found Amy. And she told Amy, now, don't miss this. She said for 24 years, she never heard the name of Jesus again. She never read a Bible. She never went to church. She never sang a song about Jesus. No one came to disciple her. She never heard a radio announcement. She never heard anything about the name of Jesus for 24 years. And she told Amy, but hearing the name of Jesus one time sustained her for 24 years. And here she came and found Amy and ended up being one of her aides until Amy died. Now think about that. We have the full measure of scripture. We have, I I counted 20 Bibles in my house last night. We have everything. And one girl for 24 years heard the name of Jesus one time. And that was enough to sustain her. So as we go out 
in the months ahead. I don't know where the Lord will take us all. I pray he brings us all back in September. Exodus is going to be amazing. I'm so excited about it. But this is what I pray, that the steady hand of Jesus is upon you all. As we see in Acts 10, as we saw in all of Second Peter, the steady hand of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, get in tune with what the Spirit is telling you and just love people with the gospel. That's what I'm going to try to live out this summer is loving people with everything that I've got in hopes that I can share the name of Jesus with them. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. And I pray that your power goes out amongst the people that we have influenced. Lord, I pray, Lord, that the name of Jesus, just in hearing it, would spark something as it did in Cornelius and that they would seek you. And Lord, that we would be available to share with them the greatest news. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, ladies.